Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Philip Olin and I'm a 2L at Maurer. I'm primarily interested in uh, hard IP, so patents and the like. Joining me today is Luke and Marcus. You guys want to introduce hello. yourselves? Hey guys, I'm Luke Steffi. I'm a 2L here at Maurer and I'm interested in working in copyright or trademark law. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Marcus. I am also too well, and I too am interested in trademark copyright law. Awesome. So today we are <coughs> going to be discussing uh, name, image, and likeness. This is something that's mm-hmm. been in the news a lot lately, especially in the sports realm. So we're going to give you know a little bit of an overview about the topic. Also discuss some relevant cases that pertain to name, image, and likeness, as well as some of the licensing strategies I believe Marcus is going to cover towards the later section here. So let's start with a basic overview of uh, name, image, and likeness law and kind of what that looks like. So to start talking about that, we have to take a few steps back and talk about the right of publicity, which is sort of where this name, image, and likeness uh, doctrine comes from. And that's a, it's a relatively new development with, within the law. It can essentially be defined as the inherent right of every human being to control the commercial use of his or her identity. So the, uh, the basic idea here is that someone should be able to profit off of their identity and someone that isn't authorized to do so shouldn't be able to. So you can imagine I can't sell a t-shirt that uses uh, LeBron James's image and likeness uh, without some agreement with him, his estate, etc. It's, it's not appropriate, right? So that's essentially the, the basic doctrine that we're talking about. And I believe uh, Judge Jerome Frank coined the term the right of publicity to start a break away from thinking of all of these you know, kind of historical cases and the terms and the theory to the right of privacy. So the right of privacy is really where this was derived from uh, originally, and that's essentially the right to be left alone. So there's a difference between the right to be left alone and the right to essentially monetize your image, right? Those, those two things are sort of related, but they're not actually the same. And the traditional sort of privacy law framework was inadequate because it was essentially premised on the idea that there was some embarrassment or humiliation that would occur from the unwanted use of a person's image as opposed to the kind of publicity that we think about with advertisements, which is not typically negative, right? It's positive, but if it's being used in an, off, an, un, in an unauthorized fashion, you're not seeing the monetary gain from that. So the right of publicity is more related to unfair competition to address sort of the commercial aspect, if you will. Uh, In 1977, the Supreme Court heard a case involving the right of publicity. So that's kind of the time frame that we're talking about it really starting to gain traction, gain ground. And uh, a few years before that 1977 case, states had begun to enact legislation setting forth the rights to publicity and privacy. And in addition, some courts had been finding a right of publicity and a person's right to control his or her identity. So at, at a fundamental level, this is a state law phenomenon. This is a, a tort phenomenon. So there are going to be different state laws and different ways that uh, different states are handling it. So with all that said, as I mentioned before, the focus really here is on commercial use and the right to control that use and to be compensated monetarily for that use, where the right to privacy, which it originally stemmed from, addressed damages to a person's mental psyche. So the basic cause of action is that a plaintiff must prove 
first, the validity of his or her right of publicity, and second, that this right has been infringed upon by the defendants. There are two basic ways that courts can go about establishing this through the common law right of publicity or the appropriation of a name or identity. And the first is that the plaintiff must prove the following four elements. First, the defendant used plaintiff's identity or persona. Second, the appropriation of that persona was for the defendant's advantage, commercial or otherwise. Third, the plaintiff did not consent to the use of his or her identity. And fourth, the appropriation is likely to cause an injury to the plaintiff. More recently, however, courts have been following the definition and elements in the restatement third of unfair competition, which is simply a two-element test. First, that defendant without permission has used some aspect of identity or persona in such a way that plaintiff is identifiable from defendant's use. And second, that defendant's use is likely to cause damage to the commercial value of that persona. So with that said, there are different state statutes that uh, additionally address the right of publicity. So to provide an example, I will read here Indiana's right of publicity defined, and it's The right of publicity in Indiana means a personality's property interest in the personality's name, voice, signature, photograph, image, likeness, distinctive appearance, gestures, or mannerisms. So that's pretty broad, right? I mean, that that encompasses... Yeah. Even gestures. Even gestures. Mannerisms. Even mannerisms. So you could imagine, you know, I'm trying to think like a, the Mr. Bean style, you know, mm-hmm. nonverbal expressions, something to that effect could, could potentially be covered by Indiana's right of publicity. Uh, so to kind of add color to this, we'll talk briefly about, or I'll, I'll talk briefly about a, a case, the estate of Mercer K. Ellington, the Gibson Piano Ventures, Inc., was a 2005 Indiana case that involved... Uh, the, the plaintiff, the estate of Mercer K. Ellington, sued a piano manufacturer over uh, use of effectively the name Ellington. So the plaintiff owned the Duke Ellington, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and the Duke Ellington signature trademarks. And they sued under trademark theories, but they also had a theory of uh, based under the right of publicity. So this is a case that kind of highlighted the reality that the right of publicity can overlap with other areas of intellectual property law, trademark, uh, copyright, among others. So with that said, I think Luke is going to talk to us a little bit about how the right of publicity sees life through name, image, and likeness specifically, and some of the recent developments in uh, the news. Yeah, so in the news, the NCAA has been a hot topic. This is college athletics, um, which are unique to the United States, interestingly enough. Before we get into name, image, and likeness, we need to take a little detour down antitrust road. So in 1984, uh, the NCAA had a Supreme Court case where essentially it was for a TV licensing deal. And the Supreme Court said that the NCAA, because they do not pay their athletes, because their athletes are amateurs, they are not subject to the same standard of antitrust laws as a corporation. This is very complicated and we won't get into it, but essentially this led to the NCAA being able to get away with not affording the players name, image, and likeness credits. So these players, because they are considered amateurs, which is debatable, we can talk about that in a minute, these players are not allowed to profit anything beyond an academic scholarship. Because they're amateurs, the schools can offer them academic scholarships, living costs, etc., but they're not allowed to profit either through a payment from the school or through licensing deals with name, image, and likeness. 
Bring that to this past summer, the NCAA, their antitrust status was challenged again in a case called NCAA versus Alston at the Supreme Court. And there was unanimous rejection that the NCAA should not be subject to antitrust law. And this was not necessarily decisive regarding antitrust law, but it did open the door to allowing the athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness. So Justice Kavanaugh had a concurrence where he talked about We're not really sure what it looks like to subject NCAA to full antitrust laws, but we do know at this point in time, it is not fair for the players to be borderline exploited. You know, kind of the irony here is that the NCAA's whole business model is built off of the athletes being amateurs, which essentially means they're not paying their employees. The people that are making the money are not getting paid. So there's definitely a shift in jurisprudence that's happening, and this has caused the NCAA to rewrite their constitution. Mm-hmm. And it was actually just released this week on November 8th. It is about half the length of the old one, and it moves away from strict, hard and fast rules and essentially offers guidelines based on what division you're in, Division One, Division Two, oh, Division Three. Okay. And it, it allows each of these divisions to handle problems as they arrive, as they arise, excuse me. And this is in contrast to the old method where in order to get a policy change, you'd have to change the policy for the entire NCAA. It was outdated. It was a long, drawn-out process. So this constitution is out for review currently, and final recommendations are due by December 15th. So I think there will be a huge shift in what we understand as college athletics here in America. Interestingly enough, the word amateur is not in this draft constitution whatsoever. Uh, This could also indicate that we're moving towards considering these players as professionals. The Constitution draft does still prohibit the pay-for-play, so there's no direct financial compensation for playing these sports, um, but it does allow for name, image, and likeness profiting, which Marcus will talk about in just a second. So as Phil mentioned, right of publicity is uh, largely within the purview of the states, uh, and since this court decision in June, uh, many states have passed legislation which allows for name, image, and likeness sponsorships. So I wanted to kind of pick your guys' brain on, are these athletes professionals? Are they amateurs? The thing that came to my mind is, for example, on TikTok, you can have any random person, they have a video that goes viral, they get a sponsorship deal from a company and they make money. Sure. They're kind of amateurs as far as content creation. So what makes these athletes who train all their lives and then come to school to play and they practice all day, they travel, they play while getting an education, the NCAA is just classifying them as amateurs and not paying them, that does seem a little unfair. So do you think college athletes should be considered professionals? I, I guess as I kind of just at first blush, when I think of the word professional, at least professional athlete, one of the distinguishing characteristics is payment, mm-hmm. right? And and so I, I, I guess I, I'm not too familiar with the NCAA's arguments, but I mean, clearly, clearly they're positing like here that they're amateurs, right? For the fact that they're not being paid, which the reason they're not being paid is because the NCA hasn't been paying them. Right. So it's a bit of a circular reasoning. Absolutely. Right? To, to say, well, they're amateurs because they're not paid. But they're not paid because they're amateurs. But ex- precisely, right? So I, I guess that's kind of my, th- my thought at, at first thought. But I don't know, Philip, if you have any. Yeah, I mean, my thought is, you know, without really getting into the details of whether the fact that they're amateurs is, is really providing some 
quality to the sport that that I'm not privy to or I'm not going to be able to articulate. I think purely about the reality that college sports, especially things like college football and college basketball, have probably near professional level fan attendance, have uh, you know huge followings. There's lots of money in the watching these sports and streaming these sports and following these sports and the memorabilia, the apparel, you know, the the reality is that if you sit down to watch a, a college football game, it, in a lot of cases, it feels like you're watching a professional football game. I mean, even just the, the quality of the players in, in some instances are, are so high that, you know, it's it looks near professional, uh, very close to it. So I think in my eyes, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And, uh, you know, as we're progressing down this road of allowing players to profit off their name, image, and likeness, I, I think that this is probably just the beginning. Uh, I think that this will sort of be the initial sort of opening of the door to potentially uh, further compensation down the line. Yeah, exactly. And I think these points are precisely what the court drew on when they made this decision in June that players should be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. Uh, so now that that's allowed, Marcus is going to touch on kind of the practical implications. I am. So as Luke correctly pointed out, the NCA has, has shifted its policy um, very, and, and did very quickly after the Supreme Court's ruling only a few days later. So the NCA's interim policy effectively allows individuals to, as Luke pointed out, uh, capitalize upon their name, image, and likeness in accordance to the, the laws of their state. Nevertheless, the NCA allows and, and has expressly allowed uh, things like uh, student players accepting endorsements from brands and companies. They've also allowed and are allowing making money based off of an individual's autograph. So, you know, Phillips a famous uh, bowl player uh, in football and, you know, he signs some cards and, and sells it on eBay, right? That, that would be a way of, of profiting off of your name, image, and likeness. Uh, personal appearances, right? Showing up, let's say, at a college bar, and, and that alone would attract a lot of people to that bar. You can do that and be compensated for that. Monetizing, and this is actually one of the most popular ways athletes are uh, monetizing their themselves, is, is through social media, right? You can do that as well. You can link up with brands uh, now and, and promote their products or, or launch your own custom merchandise. And, and, and finally, and, and this is going to be a very growing, I think, area of, of at least sports law and sports business is, is that it allows individuals, players, to, to pair with firms that coordinate these types of deals, um, which will be really fascinating to see how this cottage industry sort of props up around this new development in, in, in sports law or college sports law. So, like I said, people jumped on this very quickly. I think there was a lot of anticipation. I think a lot of people saw the Supreme Court as, as very likely to come down in favor of college players. And so very quickly after the NCAA's policy change and after the Supreme Court's ruling, athletes started cashing in. So I think it's it's kind of fun to look at a few examples here as well. Um, for example, one of the first athletes to cash in here were two, two athletes out of Fresno State, Haley and Hannah Cavender. They signed a deal with Boost Mobile, right? You know, so I don't know if either of you are Boost Mobile fans or have Boost <laughs> Mobile, uh, but now they're they're sponsoring uh, the, the Cavender siblings. Uh, Auburn's quarterback, Bo Nix, signed an endorsement deal with uh, a sweet tea brand, okay. Milo's Sweet Tea. I've never had it before, but I guess it's pretty good. 
Out of curiosity, do you know what kind of ballpark figures? You know, that's the question, right? I think people are wondering, well, are student athletes about to become, you know, millionaires and rich, right? Some, right? Some might. And especially the most famous of, at, famous of athletes, like an Auburn quarterback of, of sorts, right? These are individuals who possess large weight um, and, and, and large brands that companies are going to want to leverage. But it, as you work your way down the teams and divisions, right, sure. I think this ruling is only going to touch the lives of a very f- select few players, right? The ones who really have the influence in society. Some other, you know, just a few other examples. You know, Dante Allen, Kentucky's basketball guard, teamed up with a company to release his own custom merchandise. Um, you know, so he's got his own brand out there. Uh, Arkansas's wide receiver, Trey Knox, he inked a, a full-on social media campaign already with PetSmart. Him oh. and his dog named Blue, I guess he has a beloved dog named Blue, Aww. they're going to be engaging in a social media and have been a social media campaign for PetSmart. So it's really interesting to see where this goes. And and um, I, I think there's an expectation that while students are going to be compensated and, and able to make money, they're still not going to be making as much money as a, as a true professional you know, NFL athlete, NBA athlete, um, things alike. But, you know, there's a lot of unknowns here. Yeah, and I'm really curious to see how this might change some of the realities of the sport and of the game because as you have, like you said, this this is going to be more likely to touch the lives of a few in a really dramatic way. Maybe there will be... You know, maybe it'll be really across the ranks, but right. you know, I can imagine a, a football team, and you have one or two players who have high-value contracts with brands for right. some kind of marketing, and maybe that's and, getting in the way of you know. And, and and you could even conceivably think of a scenario where schools begin recruiting and and and, and pitching to to high school recruits to say, hey, look, if you come here, you know, we have such a robust brand as a school already you're very easily going to piggyback, you know, be able to piggyback off us and think mm-hmm. about how much money you can make by playing football at Alabama, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to some other university. Sure, right? yeah. And, and, you know, especially, I mean, think about an 18-year-old, that's going to that's gonna hit home. I'm, I, I would listen to that pitch. You know, I think the, the second and third, third order effects here are, are bound to be pretty big over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I think we're all looking forward to seeing kind of what happens in the in the coming weeks and, and months and years. So we'll uh, keep you guys posted as we as we find out anything new and uh, new and interesting. So with that said, I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, we'll close out this episode. Thank you for joining us on uh, Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C I P R Mauer I P T H. That's C I P R M A U R E R I P T H. Or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.